You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. The Lacrosse Alpha Burley Pro delivers an athletic and glove-like fit that will hold the foot in place to prevent chafing and rubbing while on the move. This boot comes in a variety of camo options and insulation options as well. Visit lacrossefootwear.com and check out the Alpha Burley Pro today. Welcome to Land of Legacy Podcast. This is your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And we are excited for another Habitat Heroes podcast right here on Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. Now, we've been talking about it in the last couple of weeks, and we've been traveling and hunting. We won't even talk about it on this one. <laughs> we'll talk about it on the next yeah. one. You'll have to wait for that other hunting podcast to hear about the adventures that we had last week. That's and boy, right. did we have some. <laughs> yeah, and uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about doing a podcast, or t- and I don't even remember how it got brought up, but I, I somebody commented earlier today too, and I couldn't. Somebody commented and said they were really looking forward to our non-game species podcast. Now, whoa, whoa, whoa! Before you turn it off, and you're like, I don't want to hear them ramble on about stupid things that I don't care about. Trust Every one us. of them that we talk about relates back to deer hunting or land management. Why it's important. Uh, for you to know it and try to manage for it. So Matt and I have selected several species, and that's kind of what this week's podcast. We're going to talk about some species that you you can't go buy a tag for. Um, But, however, in a lot of these, they are helping the species that you can buy tags for, or they have similar habitats, and they may be of concern during this time frame. And so there's grant money out there for these species, but in the long term, we got to look at, okay, because that species um, may be hurting right now, it's going to help my game species. Yes. But it, honestly, beyond all that, beyond this, it is a, to me, <clears throat> an understanding of, okay, one thing affects another, and it, it's, you know, it's a part of a bigger ecosystem. You know, it's part of a chain. There's, there's a reaction to what happens if one of these species is removed in an ecosystem. So that's why it's important for us to focus on this today and just highlight some of these animals. Um, cause there's, and there's hundreds and thousands of them out there that we could talk about. 
But it also goes to show just how awesomely designed creation is. And if we are able to really enjoy one species or multiple species that we hunt, what else is out there? Like we've got to open our eyes to all these other incredible animals and critters out there that run, fly, hop, skip, and jump, do all sorts of things that are just crazy in their own way. We just don't always spend the time studying them or watching them, whatever it may be, because we can't chase them with a bow or a gun. And that's why one of I, one of the words or slogans I I cannot stand, and it almost makes me just go, ugh, turn up my nose a little bit or snarl my lip, is deer manager. Mm-hmm. I hear you hear the, fir- the term, somebody's a deer manager, and then it really gets me when it's like, oh, they put out mineral and plant food plots. That's not management. Get out of here. And so I like land management, which somebody who's focused on the land that they have to manage, and, and that should include all the species that live there or should be there, the native species, and then even the supplements on you planting some species, let's say fruit trees or other things. It's just another part of an awesome management that can go on in that land, and that's why deer manager, and as somebody who just plants food plots or puts out a bag of feed or whatever, that's it's, not management. Get just, out of here. It's too specific. And, and again, if we have that open mindset of what we do out there on the land, what we talk about on the podcast, and hopefully what you guys are implementing out there, it has weight and it, and it affects these species that we're talking about today too. And, and that's a good thing. That's something that needs to be celebrated and talked about um, more so than, than what it does. And I don't know if really hardly any groups out there do. I know there's, there's some, but especially not like the hunting world. We've got to have an appreciation and understanding of what non-game species do and don't do for game species. Oh. Because there could be some negative things that, you know, oh, well, that species does this. It affects my deer or it affects my turkeys or it affects my quail. Well, if that wasn't there, though, what would happen? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, we we have to understand the greater picture. And that's, that's what today is all about. Well, when you look at some of the amazing... Um, Nonprofits, conservation organizations out there, then a lot of them are devoted to one thing. Um, some are specific, like when you look at QDMA and you look at um, NWTF, NWTF, and then you, then you dive into these species that we're talking about and the like the monarch partnerships, the mm-hmm. the non the, the non game species, and you see all the work that those organizations do versus then the guys who are just deer hunters who may or may not be members of QDMA. Most of the time, there's there's 65,000 members of QDMA. I forget the number of how many deer hunters there are, but so there's a striking three, three difference. Million, I think. Yeah. Three to four million. Uh, and so deer hunters in general, and I'm going to mash some toes here with a big mash lead them. hammer, uh, but we're getting our butts kicked when you look at conservation and the things we're doing in the community and for the species in general. Buying tags is not enough. Everybody says buying tags is conservation. Yeah, it's part of it, but it's a very you, small part. You don't part. have a choice. Like, if you want to hunt deer, you have to buy a tag. So just by default, yeah, you're 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 doing a part for conservation, but because it's already built in. Thank you, Pittman-Robertson Act. Yeah. But we have to go beyond that. We have to take action and, and basically... We have to be the feet of, of what of what the science tells us, and, and we have to implement this. I think kind of I was stuff. telling. I haven't done the math yet, but I was telling you something like the other day that, yeah, well, sure, I pay taxes. Um, 
And so, therefore, I'm road repair. Uh, I do my part in road repair. Well, paying taxes isn't the cost. Everyone I, does it. Or yeah. everyone's supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah, not everyone. Yeah. Um, that's why people get they're arrested. Coming, they're but, coming for you. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of what the whole slogan, hunting is conservation, sure, uh, a part of it. But there's much more we can do. And and this is my call to you guys um, to do more. Uh, frankly, here's it's a, pitiful here's what a we're not doing. If you didn't hunt... And, and, and you say hunting is part of conservation. If you didn't hunt, would you still buy a tag? Would you still spend the money? Or would you just not? Because then, then you say you're a hunter, but you're not doing anything at that mm-hmm. point. You know? Yeah. Like, if you are a hunter outdoorsman, let, let's let's be active and do stuff. And I think Quail Forever is doing some awesome stuff with the habitat restoration that they're doing, the programs of trying to restore these and working with the pollinator cost shares to restore these areas for the quail, but so many other species benefit from it. Uh, but then you look at, here you go, mashing toes again, but deer hunters in general, what are we doing? And a lot of the stuff you see on social media, uh, we just looked at a at a uh, video, Matt, where yep. guy was mowing down giant ragweed, uh, probably to plant a food plot, it looked like, and it was like, Okay, what? How late is it? How much benefit are you going to get from that food plot by planting right now, versus the benefits you were getting with the diversity of of weeds in his mind? Yep. And so th- there's a lot of stuff that deer hunters do that is not beneficial to the landscape. I'm just going to say it. And so that's where le- deer hunters should educate themselves on the long term effects, the long term management. Um, and the things we should be doing for the entire land, not just one species. Totally, totally. And that's, again, what brings us back to this podcast is, what about all the other species? I think they're out there crying. What's that hashtag? Hashtag me too. They're, yeah, they're out there crying me too. Me too. Yeah. Like, but, but seriously, we have to, we have to bring um, you know, focus to them because they have a huge important role. And I, I'm looking at one on your screen right now. And it's like, obviously, we're going to cover it. But that one, that, uh, I'm just going to say, butterfly has I, such gonna an importance. It's going to come as a shock yeah, to people right. that I picked that one. It's it's such an importance as we go like from this point on forward in, in what it's doing for grant money and what it's doing for conservation dollars and, and landowners and public lands and private lands. It's so significant and you can't hunt it, you can't eat it, you don't hang it on a wall, it doesn't matter, but what this species is doing... You can barely even touch it. Yeah. What this species is doing, though, is changing thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres across the country. That's right. And hopefully, Hopefully that's long term. Yeah. It's a little bitty butterfly. Yeah. And there's... (laughs) <laughs> millions of dollars going into trying to save this that tells you the importance of it totally um and totally. so that's one that i'm definitely excited to cover but that overall this is just a podcast devoted to try and get you to think outside of the, our, our normal routine of how can i kill a big buck so this is where we're asking you to share it with your friends on social media send it to them in an email encourage people to listen to this podcast because Are those who aren't even hunters though too those that aren't even hunters, because this is an important podcast for land management, not just deer hunting. Um, and so I, th- I think it's really I, important I, we start we start considering 
the footprint that we're leaving uh, or that we're making. And and it's important, I guess, in its role in, in the land. Well, that's what I was going to say to piggyback on that is it, hunters have the, the, the uh, stereotype out there. And good or bad, however you view it or however people think that they view you as a hunter, um, if you believe in this, th- then share it with them. If this is important to you, if you see the weight of what we're talking about in this podcast specifically, share it with them. Let them know, that, hey, I share these same thoughts. I share these same views. And and maybe um, they'll take a listen and change their opinion of, of hunters like you or, or maybe they'll go big scale and say, hey, not all of them are bad. You know? Yeah. Well, let's see what this can do. They're not all the guys that are posting the bloody hero shots on social media, and it yeah. makes me cringe. My tongue's hanging out. And Ugh. Yeah. Blood still. But let's let's dive into it. All we're, right. we're both gonna we we have each have two different animals, and then we're also gonna talk about plants. Two, two different, different plants. plants. Random from across this country that can be found. But some some may be seen as good, some may be seen as insignificant, but we're going to show how significant and important they are, no matter what the common perspective is or point of view on That's each right. plant is. So That's right. What's your, your first one? Oh, my first one is the golden-winged warbler, GWW, golden-winged warbler. And people are like... What? What? What is that? What's a golden-winged warbler? Well, it's smaller than a sparrow, but it breeds in tangled, shrubby habitats such as regenerating clear-cuts, wetland thickets, tamarack bogs, aspen and willow stands, and these are early successional young forest birds. And, and it's crazy because a lot of their habitat was historically... like. It had natural disturbances um, that would create this patchy habitat. Wildland fires, flooding from beaver dams create this patchwork of openings amidst large wooded forest. And it's like, wow, little patchy openings across wooded forest. What does that sound like to you? Bedding area thickets? Fantastic bedding area, <laughs> right. bedding area thickets. It's like, huh, wow, that, that, that's interesting. That could, that, Early successional, uh, you, great food, great yeah, cover. You got me interested. Everything. A lot of the food items include caterpillars, moths, insects, spiders. Um, the golden wing warbler feeds on foliage by probing their sharp bills into rolled up leaves to find their prey. Um, their nest, they select, the female selects sites, um, which are typically on the ground in grassy openings and, or on the shaded field edges. Um, I thought was pretty cool is, is the specificness of this this little quote. The female bit builds a nest usually on the ground in a course of one to three days. She often places the nest at the base of a plant such as goldenrod or blackberry, using the, the tall, thick plant stem as support as for the nest. So like they'll build it on the ground, but use that as like a backing. And we always talk about those species in particular being great areas. For cover, because they provide cover for for, um, for white-tailed deer, nesting birds, just like this golden-winged warbler, wild turkeys, quail. And they're using these ones specifically for that structure, but then deer can also forage and bed in them as well. Um, but here, here's why I, I selected it, because it's not all cool in the whole golden-winged warbler lifespan right now. 
Um, That's what I – when you say that, of course, we didn't – I didn't know what Matt selected, and he didn't know what I selected until right before we started recording. We just wanted to make sure we weren't covering the same ones. Um, and so whenever you said that, I Googled and went to one of my favorite sites when I was looking at birds, and it's all about birds.org. And, of course, it's a um, – it's under kind of a watch list. Yeah, it's a species of concern, and here's why. It's because of the loss of habitat, because those habitat types we just talked about, they don't occur all the time because we've, we've lost those disturbances. And, and so those naturally occurring ones, we always talk about fire. So because of the loss of habitat, now there's two main populations, and they're kind of split, one kind of east coast, one more in the Midwest and the Upper Great Lakes, they, they call it. Um, so that's Wisconsin, Minnesota, Manitoba. Uh, 95% of the population is in the Upper Great Lakes area, and only 5% remains in the Appalachian, New York to Georgia. And Minnesota has the highest density of the golden wing warblers, um, and the Appalachian Mountain population has nearly has dropped, basically, to, I guess, is down by 98% in the Appalachian portion. And that to me is like, oh my gosh. It stuck out because I I, I took ornithology when we were back in uh, in college. And this was one of the birds that we just kind of always talked about. It's like, it always kind of hung with me. It's like, man, that's one bird. It's like, why why are we not having them? And and that's one of the other things that kind of got back into the focus of just habitat, habitat, habitat. It's got to be there. It's got to be there. and it's down 98% along the East Coast, which is just and ridiculous. 68% overall. Overall, correct. 2.5% per year from 1966 to 2014. To 2014. So that adds up What's to that sad 66% is, just um, decline in total population. When, when we look at some of the other species that down the road, what we're considering doing in the future is having one or two every every week. We cover like one animal, one plant. And it's like, it's like a kind of like another little, like, would you rather little section to the podcast? Yes. Yes. Um, so this was another really cool fact because it talks about, um, invasive species and it brings it into its impact that it has on the golden wing warbler beyond just what we talk about in the podcast, but it says in wetland habitats, a stronghold for golden wing warblers, but the massive invasive phragmites, if you've never seen it, it, uh, I'm not going to say it closely resembles a cattail, but it grows similar to a cattail along the edges. Um, it's very tall, 12 foot plus. I, and I think people would automatically see that and go, boy, I need to plant, plant Phragmites for a screen. <laughs> oh, gosh. Possibly. And it would fail miserably. Yeah. But it, it is huge and, and a very invasive, and it takes over um, the edges of marsh, marshes and wetlands. Um, but we're seeing that it's taking over uh, a lot of the the bogs and the wetlands along the East Coast, and that's where they build their nest. And they can't build it within this Phragmites, this invasive species that's non-native to this area. Um, another cool fact I thought was they're very smart, like intelligent birds, and they, ask, they use, like, trickery. So they'll take – they'll go get a bunch of food when they have – building their nest, and then there's, you know, the, the little birds in the nest – and they come back and drop food in different places. Like if they feel like they're being watched by a human or by a predator, they'll go and drop food over here and drop food over here to basically displace or show, hey, my nest could be here, could be here, could be here. 
while everything else is watching it. So it's like this little trickery that they play um, <laughs> if they sense that a predator's close. And you already explained that 68% decline in the total habitat from 19, I mean, excuse me, in the total population from 1966 to 2014. Um, but what the really, really cool thing is, is NWTF, National Wild Turkey Federation, recognized that a lot of the habitat is very similar from the golden wing warbler, a bird that is probably an ounce in size, is very similar to what a wild turkey needs. And so they have partnered and, and are doing work to bring back the golden wing warbler to, one, improve the populations for the golden wing warbler, and knowing by default it's going to also improve habitat for wild turkeys. So they're killing, if you will, this is a horrible pun, two birds with one stone. Wow. Does that work out perfect or what? I guess. <laughs> so, but it, it's cool that they, they recognize, hey, listen, we can we can utilize this species of concern. It's a 15 out of 20. Um, and I think they I read also that it is the, oh gosh, most concerned species that is not yet on the endangered species list. That's it's it. It's like, holy cow, we're so close to possibly losing this bird, especially on the East Coast, that we have got to do something. So go create some bedding area thickets if you're along the East Coast, New York to Georgia, or up the upper Great Lakes region, knowing that, hey, not only am I going to impact the turkeys, I'm going to impact the white-tailed deer, I'm going to improve my hunting, I'm also going to have a huge impact, positive impact, on possibly the golden-winged warbler. So be sure, and the sites and stuff that we're using to get this information, we're going to have them in the show notes. We'll probably have some pictures and stuff like that as well. But be sure to come back, go to the website, the new website that we've got, and click on these. Study up on them. Learn about them because they're cool. They're interesting. And they do have an like a, a big impact potentially on the habitat that's in and around your area. And not only that, if you're doing habitat work and you see a golden wing warbler show up and nest on your place, that's a great sign that you're doing something right. Great, great and, sign. And when you go into, when we discuss my first animal, it's uh, another thing that it's like, if you see, if you're seeing those around your property and they're nesting on it, you know you're doing something right. It's like indicator species. And, and take notice of how they're using the habitat, where they're spending their time. And if you want to, because I love this type of habitat that they need, replicate that elsewhere on the property. Expand it. Say, hey, if I've got some that are migrating through or nesting here, Every year, let me take that step further and make it even better. Yeah, and that's good again, as we've talked about, because habitat types are similar. That's going to improve turkey numbers. That's going to improve deer numbers. So we we have to be um, to take notice of this bird and the golden wing warbler and its concern and the lack of habitat and then the decline of population. Um, yeah, as gonna, hunters, we can do it. I was gonna I was gonna play their song here in a second. Oh, and see sure. if we can hear it. I I've never. probably be really faint probably really faint for you guys yeah but really faint and hard to hear through matt's talking but <clears throat> look at the picture identify them um and just keep an eye out for them because it's really really neat uh what these birds can do yeah it says five to seven inches long and one to two ounces in their size 
They're tiny, tiny little thing. Tiny, 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 tiny little thing. Um, well, I, I mean, to me, I, it's funny because you picked a bird probably associated with early successional habitat. Yeah. I picked a bird associated with the woodlands and savannas. Mm-hmm. Um, Which two I think, types honestly, of, respectively, I love that early successional habitat, like that those first like three that first three years. Yeah. Five years, like I don't know, there's something about that that's like, oh, just. I love seeing it, and you love, obviously, early successional as well, but woodlands and savannas. That's right. I, I, I love them equally, but I probably talk about savannas and woodlands more just because I think it's harder to get there. Um, early successional can be done pretty quickly in certain instances, and but savannas and woodlands takes a little bit more work usually. Um, are you done with the golden, golden wing yeah. warbler? Before I do mine, I w- I've got to say something. I meant to say this at the beginning of the podcast, but we did something last week. Mainly, I we fell. I fell victim to the ignorant Ozarkian that used the phrase that I'd heard, but I hadn't, I guess, researched or understood the background of it. And I'm horribly the, embarrassed. The stereotypical, at, um, I guess, association that that is. I guess said with the word gets, yes yes I, I I guess we used it a couple of times last week and not really twice. not really understanding um I guess what it could be taken to or what it truly meant or what some people took it as so my deepest apologies for that um Adam's going on the record going on the record you'll never hear that again here because now we understand Oh wow, that that could have been uh, that could have been hurtful to some people. So we definitely aren't going to say it ever again. And we hope that you guys can um, accept the apology because uh, that was kind of a couple emails came through. And I was like, oh, yeah, certainly yeah. never mean to step on anybody's toes. And never, uh, never we do, but not in that sense. Certainly not not in a um, cultural religion standpoint at racial, all. Racial, whatever no. it is, whatever you want to call it. Um, we didn't. We we don't want to step on any toes there. Now we'll smash toes with the habitat side. <laughs> I um, welcome that. <laughs> but when it comes to um, a couple of the things that we said, um, so we, if you were we fed hopefully you're we still with us. Yeah. Um, all right. So mine, red-headed woodpecker. The reason I chose red-headed woodpecker habitat is open woodlands and savannas. Um, just a awesome. Very stinking beautiful bird. I've always get a kick out of seeing these. Um, if you don't know what a red-headed woodpecker is, check it out. I mean, it's such a cool-looking bird. Bright, what do you know? It's got a red head, but it's also got a white body and some white wings with a black um, back to it. Super cool. Um, I'm going to try and it's play that. It's the- a very sharp-looking bird. Yeah. How many times have you heard that sound? A lot, yeah, I bet. But it's a very, it's a very clean looking bird. Very, it's distinct. suited up. Yeah, I think they call it the tuxedo bird, don't they? Something like that. Um, I forget what there. I have that later on, but um, they range from, and I think you said the range of the golden wing warbler, the range of the redheaded woodpeckers from the east coast to New Mexico and from Florida to Canada. So pretty much everywhere in between, all the way up to the Dakotas, um, down in New Mexico and east. Um, so it has a big range. Now, that's not to say that it has a population that's abundant through all of it. Just like the golden wing warbler, it has some concern to it. Um, 
and one thing that I saw, this is kind of interesting, since it has white feathers, they've documented the change of its feathers over the course of a few decades, yeah. and it's gotten more gray more than white like. because they're considering it because of soot or air pollution in the East Coast. No kidding. Yeah. That, it's just like, wow, that's that's a lot of uh, pollution if it's changing the basically black carbon is what they're calling it that's that's, wild. that's changing its feathers that's from sad. white to gray um and it's basically redhead woodpeckers decline by over two percent per year so i think the golden wing warbler was two and a half mm-hmm. um so the redhead woodpecker is close from 1966 to 2010 resulting in a 70 percent decline in its population yikes um yeah so uh Basically, it's in trouble as well. Um, it's got a population of about 1.2 million, they're saying, um, right now. And 99% of it is in the U.S., its population. There's a little bit in Canada, but most of it's in the U.S. Of course, its diet is insects and seeds. It's one of the few birds that will store its food in trees. It'll mm-hmm. store it in cracks, um, holes, but basically stores its food in the crevices of trees. Um, They nest. This is the thing that I really find interesting because how many times do you see a large oak get cut down for firewood? And she's like, oh, it's a large oak. It's dead. Cut it down. Yep. But that is such a crucial part of the habitat for the red-headed woodpecker, Um, specifically trees that don't have bark. That's why a lot of times you'll see them roosting in um, telephone poles. And do you know why that is? No bark? Is it their claw? Nope. Think about nesting. It's because of snakes. Okay. Snakes can't climb up the slick bark trees as easy. So that makes sense. Um, they try to roost in areas that don't have bark. Um, I think it's a nuthatch. That the design of its feet, it can walk down a tree. Back, it can walk straight down a tree. I yeah, think it it's a nuthatch. Um, it climbs up and walks straight back down. Most birds can't walk right back down, but just the way it's the design of its feet it could do that. It's so yep. cool. Um, crazy. One thing about the redhead woodpecker, the male selects an area in a tree. Um, if he's building a new nest, he will select an area, and then the female has to approve, and she'll kind of tap around it, and then he will dig out the hole for the nest on the tree. What you think, baby? Think we yeah. all settle in here? Is this a good place? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there was frustration for him as well as every oh, other yeah. man picking a house. I don't like the interior of that tree. <laughs> yeah. I don't like the yard. The wood grain just is off. It's yeah. off. Does it have to be a white oak? I was hoping it'd be a red oak. Yeah. I'm uh, not liking the wood paneling design. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. Um, so 1970. They, uh, th- this is where it gets important and how, how this relates back to deer is because they like the open woodlands and savannas, a lot of times when they nest, they're in big oaks or other trees. It doesn't have to be an oak specifically, but bigger trees that are dead. Um that are not closed canopy forests. So they're looking for those woodlands where it's semi-open. They're looking mm-hmm. for those savannas. They're looking for those trees out in the middle of fields that are dead uh, to where they can get in and out of them um, and not be in closed canopy. A lot of the insects um, that they're looking for that are part of their diet and seeds aren't found in closed canopy because there isn't much growing mm-hmm. at the understory of a closed canopy forest. So they need those insects that are brought in by the diversity of spe- uh, plant species that are only there because of the amount of sunlight coming so to the forest say, floor. It all goes back to that sunlight. It's yes. Um, so Just, it, they, 
they're important because they signalize fragmented landscape, open mm-hmm. landscape. Um, they say that they're often found in orchards. Yeah. Um, and on the East Coast at the edge of towns with trees and suburbs where they still have trees yeah. in there. But they have to be the bigger trees. That's oh, what yeah. this it, is crucial to their um, to their population. Did you read anything about their flight, the design of their flight? Because they have pretty unique like flight patterns. They're like they kind of like I don't know flutter a little bit. Like they if you were to take like a I'm trying to think of it like a visual like a W like sound waves and they like spread them out. They kind of like this like looping like they flap glide a little bit flap glide a little bit. Um, but it's cool. I, and I'm wondering if that's like a okay they they. They can hop in an open space from tree to tree. If you have like a savanna, it's like thirty percent trees, a couple you know flaps, and they're just flipping to one tree to another. Didn't read these anything long about flights it. where they nope. you know where that that type of flight design would not be very useful, but uh, interesting. Yeah, That's one cool. thing that was cool about it was they banded a bird in nineteen twenty six, and it and it lived to be nine years old and eleven months, almost twelve wow. or almost ten years old. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So ten year old. Yeah. Bird. Uh half a half a shirt or the shirt tail bird. That's its nickname. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Or flag bird. Um interesting. Yeah, and they have some tied back to the Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Um Cherokee Indians used the species as a war symbol. Um Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so really cool bird. Um you don't see a lot of them. I think of a lot of times we see them in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Where there is such mm-hmm. an abundance of oaks, van or should be such an abundance. Yep. Um, that's what that landscape was, but it's not a whole lot in places. But they're definitely a cool bird, and I hope people check them out and do their part to restore the habitat for them. I know we're doing our part. Yeah. Okay. On to my next, my next animal. And I feel like people are just going to laugh, just straight laugh. I'm like, you know yeah. what? Just sit back and listen to this incredible little creature. And it's the meadow mouse, or commonly known as the the field mouse and you're like what in the world is this guy talking about a field mice for um here's the range central alaska and eastward south across canada into the united states new mexico is the southwestern boundary and georgia is its southeast boundary it's not really found in the upper rocky mountain region but in a massive massive range typically only live to be a year to a year and a half old um, habitats vary, but grassy fields to open woodlands and marshes. They frequently are found in shoreline zones along rivers and around ponds and lakes. And here's the funny part, and oh, this will kind of put things into perspective, I guess, um, when we compare and usually talk about deer, but they establish a relatively fixed home range and that in areas of a tenth to one acre in size. Woo, kind of mind-blowing. Not bad for a uh, one- to two-ounce little animal in size. One acre, that's a that's big for a little guy like that, right? No doubt. That'd be like my home range is maybe Missouri. Yeah. Or yeah. the Midwest. That's right. But I thought I thought that was just kind of a neat uh, – a tenth to, to one acre relatively you know, fixed home range. Um, and they will. They, they talked about um, in, in the research they move around – their home range, and, and oftentimes, just like a deer does, during mating season, when they're finding mates, they will leave that home range and disperse and move genetics around. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. They commonly eat living plants, grasses, sedges, plantain, 
a wide variety of weeds in the spring and summer. Fall and winter, they switch to grains, seeds, bark, roots, and overwintering fruits. Um, but they must eat their body weight in food every day in order to survive. They don't hibernate and they don't store food. So 365 days a year, but every day of their life, they're eating their body weight. That's why they eat so much that they get in your house. You're That's like, right. Oh my There's gosh. crumbs everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we've talked about this on a podcast before, so I'll, I'll briefly mention it. Um, but reproduction rate is extremely high. They reach maturity, re- reproductive maturity, at just 20 days old. Um, their gestation, uh, their litters are, are 2 to 11 pups, and that takes place in less than a month. Um, females can mate immediately after giving birth. Um, so they're weaning one litter and then, which takes 21 days. And then she has another one right after that. Um, so it's almost impossible for a female meadow vole. So, excuse me, it's possible for her to have 12 litters a year, 12 litters pretty much in her, in her lifespan. Um, that's all done in one year. And in the cooler climates, they have about eight, eight litters because they're only reproducing from March to November. Um, but here's where it gets really, really interesting. And a lot of research has been done on these because there are there is a negative side to mice. And as we know, that they can be uh, host or, I guess, vectors for some diseases. So a lot of research has gone into them. But what they are finding, and as we've talked about soil health um, in this podcast multiple times, this is going to blow your mind. Their high rate of ingestion of vegetative material stimulates its decomposition and nutrient release. Their nutrient-rich fecal pellets are widely dispersed through their habitat to the great benefit of new and growing vegetation. These voles also accelerate the dispersal of vital mycorrhizal fungi and thus influence the survival and growth rates of many important species. Metavoles are most abundant in open fields, shrubbed ecosystems, and early successional stages of disturbed ecosystems. Their presence and activities greatly impact the rate and direction of subsequent successional stages. So how can one little tiny one to two ounce mouse have such an impact A rodent. on success- successional stages, improving, dispersing, increasing, spreading mycorrhizal fungi across the ecosystem to benefit the soil that's going to benefit the vegetation that we see with our eyes like, or, or rely on as a farmer. That's a mouse is helping and, and taking part of that process. So that's where we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. These creatures play important roles that impact basically – our food, you know, yeah, totally. How much grain is grown? All this stuff, and, and and they're also impacting the the rate and direction of successional stages, based on what they're foraging on and the dispersal of their fecal matter. Have you everyone seen a mouse turd before? It is tiny, yeah, but it's having an impact. Like that small little thing has such an impact on the habitat that's out there because we need to have them and, and the numbers and they reproduce like crazy. But if you're managing early successional habitat and you see a mouse, thank the mouse because it's having an impact on that habitat and the successional stages of that habitat, which is just mind blowing. 
again, that, that a mouse, something that people freak out about, something that people trap so often, something that people want to squash or whatever, and they think it, it really is a nuisance or a rodent has such a positive impact on habitat for ground nesting birds, fawn survival rate with the right amount of cover and habitat. Because um, they are a buffer uh, prey species. And and the the forage vegetation that they're promoting in these early successional yep. areas. Right. And then there are they are highly selected as a prey species from coons, coyotes, bobcats, uh, all these things. Like thank a field mouse. Like they they are such an impactful animal in the greater food chain. And if that was removed or that was non existent, um wow. That, that would change things. That would change a lot of things. It, it would change soil fertility. It would change the food chain. It would change the successional stages of the way the habitat works. Um, that's just, it to me, it, it's mind-blowing. Hopefully the same for you. But the other thing that they, they talked about is it's not really a forest or, or woodland. There are wood mice and, and things like that, but this mouse is not commonly found in forest or, or closed canopy forest. So it, that benefit doesn't really take place there with this mouse. Maybe perhaps other ones. But early successional habitat is where it's at. It's where it's happening. Wasn't that crazy? Crazy. I, I'm just blown away that such – it's one of those species that if you pulled deer hunters or whatever and you said, hey, what's a field mice? Like, oh. They always get in and eat up my blinds. Or, yeah, yeah. And they don't have – they're a very minute little species that they don't care about, are not concerned with. Yep. If they had their way with it – Ain't got no role here. If they ran into it and had the opportunity, they'd probably kill it. Um, mm-hmm. But it's definitely one of those that is uh, – uh, has a huge role. Just just huge a role. dynamic not, one. For little bitty thing – Pound for pound, if you looked at the impact that it puts, yeah. it'd be like, wow, it's it's up there. Oh, he, here's a challenge then. Pound for pound, who's doing more? The field mice out there or you? Right? Field mouse. <laughs> <laughs> On sad. average. Not me, um, because we do so much. I mean, Right. But like that that's something to say. Who's out there working harder? Who's out there making that's a right. bigger impact? He's you doing it three hundred and sixty five days a year. Yeah. Until yeah. he croaks, so 365 days a year, and then he's done. <laughs> Making lots of children, too, to That's carry it. it on. That's it. Uh, to me, so. when you think about it, crop fields. What kind of habitat is there for field mice and crop fields? Not much. What kind of habitat is, is there for, for a uh, closed canopy forest? Not much. What about early secessional? A lot. What about mm-hmm. prairies? A lot. Mm-hmm. How many early secessional and grasslands do we see? Not a lot. Mm-hmm. What's that tell you? We need more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at the erosion control, and we'll cover it in some one of my plant species, um, when you look at erosion control and um, all the benefits that those type of habitats provide, it's just overwhelming when you compare it. Yeah. Now, we can't make money off of it like a crop, and therefore that's why we lose it. Yeah. Um, and it gets plowed under, but... For the most part, it's one of those things that we really need to be trying to f- incorporate. Maybe it's field edges, whatever it is. We need to incorporate more of the early successional and then later on the prairies. As far as we're talking early successional, 
is early secession, as it says in the name. It's kind of that one to four year old range, and then once the annuals start to die out or get out competed by the perennials, um, and then you look at the prairies and grasslands. But um, field mouse, definitely meadow mouse. Pretty cool little gem. Pretty cool little, pretty cool Next little time species. You see one. Give him a thumbs up. <laughs> yeah, give him a high five. Yeah. Don't squash him when you do it. Um, so my next, uh, my next animal or non-plant, as the may come to a to a shocker uh, to a lot of people, but it's the monarch butterfly. Um, just because, and you'll know why I did this one because it's so incredibly unique. It's so incredibly threatened, and. Because of that, there's so many things we can do as hunters um, to help this species while also helping our deer. While, while also this species, I think that, that's the important thing, while this species, because of its concern at this time, is going to, can help, will help your deer. Yeah. That's, that's important to, to understand. Go so ahead. when it comes to the monarch butterfly, and I think a lot of us probably remember this from elementary school studying it at some point, maybe, hopefully. Um, there's four stages in one life cycle, and there's four generations in one year. <laughs> what? That's too much How does math. That, what? what does that even mean? <laughs> there's four stages in one life cycle, and there's four generations in one year. So the life cycles is the egg, the larva, the pupa and the butterfly mm -hmm. so you go from the egg and then you go to the caterpillar and then you've got basically the cocoon stage mm -hmm. and then you have the butterfly so that's four life cycles now four generations means that it takes four generations in one year to complete the migration right. um so sometime in early spring they have Let's a range just pause right there for a second did everyone know that monarchs migrate like I hope so. Like I'm sure you have it in there. Where are they migrating from? So they winter in central Mexico. There's a small area yep. that all the monarchs in all of USA, Canada, they all go there to winter. Um, I think there are monarchs in Hawaii, but they don't migrate. Gotcha. I think I just read that the other day. But the monarchs that we're talking about, the ones that we're going to be seeing, are wintering in central Mexico in a cluster of forest um, to where basically it's the right temperature to where they don't die from heat and they don't die from freezing. Okay. It's like the perfect little area. Um, and they migrate to the U.S., through the U.S., and into southern Canada. So this little bitty <laughs> flapping butterfly yep. flaps its way from Mexico that to Joker's Canada. covering some ground. Um, now, a lot of the migration, I don't have this in my notes, but a lot of the migration happens above our heads in the jet streams. Mm -hmm. um, and there's been reports of airplane pilots flying and seeing these huge clouds of monarchs. Yeah. Um, hopefully, they didn't fly through them. Yeah. Um, hopefully, there's enough turbulence that they missed them. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, that's something that's really cool. Now, we do have a lot of them we see, and we saw a ton of them in, oh, in yeah, Nebraska. But they are such a cool, absolutely beautiful little insect. Now, we probably know this, but just to refresh, in nature, a lot of times you see these small insects that have these brilliantly bright colors. It's usually a defense mechanism to warn off predators. So with, with that being said, that's why the monarch has these beautiful oranges and blacks is because it's trying to ward off predators to tell them, don't eat me, I'm poisonous, and you're not going to like it what, mm -hmm. the way I taste. Um, and it's not just 
orange and black. It's mixes of little white specks and yep. yellows, and, and that throws off like I, I know like the white specks are are meant to be like eyes. Like mm-hmm. um, I think it's mimicry camouflage. I think that's what that mechanism is. But it's like uh, it's supposed to just not only deter them from getting eaten, but then not give away like what part of the body it actually is. Like where's the head? There's eyes everywhere on it, kind of deal. Yep. And so here's one other thing that's super cool about these. The first to the third generation live about two to six weeks. Mm-hmm. So they hatch out from an egg. They turn into a caterpillar. They go in their cocoon, and they come out a butterfly. And then they fly a little portion of their migration. They land somewhere. They lay their eggs on a milkweed. And then they perish. And then right. that egg hatches, and it turns to a caterpillar, and they go into their cocoon after a while, and then they come out a butterfly, and then they fly a ways. And they do that. It's like a stage first, race. First through the third migrate from Mexico um, north. And once they reach the northern part of their territory, um, then the fourth generation hatches out. And that generation is looks the same as far as when you compare it um, in colors, but it lives six to eight months. So it takes these three generations to start the migration. It takes the fourth one to migrate all the way back to Mexico. To finish, and that completes the entire... The the year. The year. The The one year. year. Not the life cycle. Four generations to complete one year of migration, basically. One little bitty stinking... Tiny little butterfly. Um, of course, as we probably all know, one of the biggest things they feed on is milkweeds. Mm-hmm. Um, milkweed, this is really cool, is, of course, it contains the poison that makes it, um, that's that white stuff that gets its na- makes it have its name milkweed. Um, that causes, this is something that I love, is as the egg hatches and the caterpillar begins uh, is formed and it starts to feed on the milkweed, that's what makes it poisonous to other animals. But it eats so much milkweed during the process of being a caterpillar that when it goes in its cocoon, of course, it's still poisonous. Even coming out as a butterfly, it's eaten so much milkweed that it's still poisonous. So, like, toxic to a predator. Toxic, yes. Crazy. And then, of course, it gets its energy as a butterfly from the nectar of those milkweeds mm-hmm. and other plants. Mm-hmm. Um it's like, can't, that's can't get me now. Can't that's get me why now. those uh, those pollinator plants are such a crucial part to so critical um, to the to the monarch butterfly and other pollinators. Um, of course, you know we all think that, and and it's been told for so long that milkweeds are the biggest thing that we can do to help the monarch. Of course, that and and that being the biggest thing that makes it response or being responsible for its decrease in population. I mean, it's dropped 90% since the mid-90s. 90% of the population has dropped since the mid-90s. That's insane. Yeah. Um, and that's why it's so threatened. Um, when we look at the lack of milkweeds, that's a big part of the problem. But one of the biggest is the amount of uh, the loss in, for- 
in the forest in Mexico where they're wintering. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest thing. Of course, it's kind of there are things we can do, but it's kind of hard up here in Missouri to go to Mexico and try to plant trees. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we can plant our milkweeds and do all that, but uh, raising awareness for the monarch is something we definitely can do, and supporting the nonprofits that are fighting the good fight for the monarch butterflies and other pollinators. Um, basically, um, what, what I find important about the pollinators or specifically the monarch butterfly, how many times there's two things we're all looking to try and improve the habitat. Um, and we've probably all heard and trying to find ways to incorporate, um, cost share into some of our long-term management Mm -hmm. and trying to help pay um, for some of the management. So if we have uh, a field of fescue or an old pasture that is no longer going to be grazed and we're like, how can I improve the habitat for these species, uh, for the deer and quail and turkeys, um, if you enroll it in a monarch pollinator, you're going to get a lot. There's a lot more funding going on right now for these for funding. these monarchs, for these pollinators. But they're providing food, cover, and everything else for your wildlife. Yeah. But it is... Under the government title, it's done for pollinators, mm-hmm. um, and it's going to benefit everything from the deer to the butterfly. So that's one of the huge, one of the biggest reasons why you should understand the monarch butterfly and look to find ways to do your part to help the monarch butterfly. Because the, it's going to help you. It's going to help you. I, I it's going to help the land. I have a friend. And I always remember him by it. It's, uh, he always, help me help you. When he, when he, like when he would like try and persuade you, that was, that was his go-to phrase. Help me help you. Yeah. That's the, this is the the uh, monarch butterflies. Help me help you. That's right. As a hunter, as a deer hunter. Now, as a deer hunter, what's their ties to the monarch caterpillar? How many people are you seeing now using the milkweed seeds as wind checkers? Organic, all natural. They're like, <laughs> and and because you can let it go, and you're going to see this little fluffy sprig go through the air yep. for hundreds of yards or. However many yards, (laughs) binoculars. And so um, I I saw a video just recently where a guy was was removing the seeds. Now, here's where I'm going to get after it. What did you do do with the seeds? If you don't know, you're part of the problem. What did you do with the the seeds? Did you throw them in the trash? You're part of the problem. What did you do with the seeds? Did you plant them or did you pick them too early to where the seeds weren't mature? Mm. You're part of the problem. Don't. Stop it. You can still use milkweed as wind checkers, but take the seeds when it's mature. You're looking for a seed pod. And, of course, it's got a a very cool-looking seed pod, kind of a spiky, but it doesn't hurt. A elongated egg with a little point. Yeah, it's it's a really cool looking seed pod, but don't go pick it when it's green and the seed's not mature. Yeah. You're you, you're killing the seed. Stop it. Let the seed pod just start to crack and then go and open it up. Separate the fluffy thing that you want with the seed and then go plant the seeds and you can use it in the future. There's nothing wrong with using milkweed seeds as wind checkers. There is a big problem with it when you're taking it too early you're not planting the seeds and you're and you're basically removing that year's seed from the landscape stop it just just stop it that's all i got on monarch butterflies you want to end like that <laughs> what i said you want to end like i want to end on that because that's how important it is i, I just know, get so frustrated seeing people um go in to pull out 
well, and again, milkweed seeds when they're not mature, they don't plant them, um, and because they're concerned about the no, the, the wind, wind, so they can hunt deer, which the deer is doing much better than the monarch butterfly. Totally it frustrates um, me. And that's the thing. I, of, I think of, of Dave Ramsey. He had a video the other day. Where he was like, "It's absurd. It's stupid. <laughs> that's insane." That's how I feel right now. Yeah. Like, well, that's the thing of of why we did this podcast, though, is because we have to understand what these plants and these animals what they mean, their purpose. And if we're disrupting the life cycle, if we're disrupting the seed production of an important plant that has an important significance to an important pollinator, we've got to understand that just because we want to check the wind, leave the seed pod alone, use a different um, wind decator. But honestly, we probably have time for each of us to do one plant, plant. a plant. So you got to choose. Um, I'm going to go. I kind of did. I did two that were commonly thought of as like annoying or like okay. bothersome to people. Like, God, this is just stupid. Get off me! Or, ouch, that hurts. That cuts me. That I wanted to show significance of why why you need to know what that plant is and what it does. Um, so I'm going to select greenbrier or smilac or catbrier or catbrier. But What's this the is range? A, this is oh all over the place. Um, the range, Texas, all the way up to I have it in here. Um, Somebody wasn't prepared. Don't, don't remember. Know. Texas on up north. We'll go with that. I know they have it um, in Delaware. Oh yeah, and Delaware, I know they have it in Michigan. Michigan, and we'll, I know we'll they have it in Georgia. So pretty the, much the, a lot of the um, Midwest, country. East Coast. Yes. Um, so it, it's what's crazy is it's in the monocot family, which is typically your grasses like corn, Johnson grass, all that is a monocot. But this is this is categorized as a monocot, but it has a woodyish stem, and I thought that was kind of cool. I, I wonder why, but um, they are a climbing, flowering plant. They are thorny, which is why I selected because people are like, oh my gosh, I hate that stuff. I hate walking through it. It's it rips my pants, it rips my legs up, it burns my legs when I get in the shower. But this plant um, has an extremely good forage value for deer. Um, and it stays green for a long time of the year. I also did a little bit of research and found out that it has ties back to um, deciduous from that woody stem, but also evergreen species. So it stays green for much of the year, which is important to the diet of white-tailed deer and it's important for a cover aspect um, and then it produces a berry as well that birds will forage on and then poop out everywhere else so they'll disperse seeds um, they'll spread the seeds and then there are rhizomes that's the way this plant chooses to spread underneath the ground so another thing that i feel like is super important about this it is very damage tolerant plant so it's capable of growing back from those rhizomes after being cut down or burned by fire and i think that we can oftentimes look at this plant and say it cuts me up i can't get rid of it i hate it but that's probably a good thing because when we look at its impact from a forage value and its prolificness and its hardiness that has to be in the landscape because if it wasn't there would be less deer food that is consistent throughout the entire year and that will grow back. And when you do 
distress it or disturb it, cut it down and or burn it, that fresh tender vegetation through the roof. Absolutely. Through the roof. But it's something that we always talk about as annoying, bothersome. It hurts. Every, I think as how a many, kid, everyone How many times as a kid, a teenager, an early adult, did you think, man, I hate briars. But then as you study land, the land management and um, you basically see the benefits of those briars and brambles, you're like, oh, maybe they're not all bad. Green briar is one of those that oh, you're going to cuss oh. like crazy before you know it's true value, and then you're going to love seeing it. Yep. And then you're going to think about, how can I get more of it? How can you get more of it? Oh, what do you think? <laughs> Open up the canopy. <laughs> yeah. But some of the stems can be as long as 42 feet long. Isn't that wild? It's crazy. That's one of those where you see it going all the way to the top of a mm-hmm. tree, and you're like, man, Keep going, climbing, 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 finding that sunshine. Um, and this was cool. So, Obviously, deer eat the tender leaves, but then lagomorphs or invertebrates like your monarch butterfly and other butterflies and moths, they drink the nectar from the flower. So this little plant, um, or sometimes big plant. And birds eat the berries. Birds eat the berries. Feeds so many different things, but that's why, because it, every aspect of it, the, the leaves, the, the berries, the flowers are sought after. It has to have these defensive mechanisms like thorns and its hardiness. Um, and the rhizomes to then continue to grow to spread the seeds. Wonder how so, you know. Wonder how deep those roots are. I don't know because if it's forty-two foot it, tall, if they've found forty-two foot tall, mm-hmm. you know it's got a heck of a root system. Oh yeah. Well, actually, I might be able to go back. Well, I'll, I'll show it to you later. Um, maybe it's in, in one of the links I'll, I'll send. But it was a root mass that they had just yanked up, and it was fibrous underneath it. But there's a big, big chunk of roots right there underneath the, mm. the ground. Six, seven inches but then the fibrous portions were were spread they're pretty massive um but it, it's i i i, I again sh- shared this one because we can't think of thorns and everything as bad we've got to think of this as an important part of the ecosystem and what happens if we were to get rid of it and i know historically um especially in the cross timbers region like kind of east texas up through eastern oklahoma where there was dense pockets of blackjack trees, post oaks, settlers, I guess the accounts, they, they talk about going through these large portions of short timber and underneath of it, because it was kind of spaced out, uh, trees was straight greenbrier. It was like a jungle, but in the Texas, Oklahoma region. Um, so back then, Greenbrier was everywhere growing, but was this fortress among blackjack and post oak. And you know how tough and stiff those trees are, short, kind of shrubby-ish, uh, shorter growing trees. Can you imagine trying to drag a horse through no, that? No, not at all. Cut your way through that? Um, so a lot of times people went up and around this portion and didn't cut through because it was like impenetrable. Crazy. Crazy. Talk about habitat. Love and Greenbrier. Yep. Super important. What you got? I'm torn because I love both of these, obviously. But I'm going to go with the shortleaf pine. Oh, nice. Um, because of the fact of it's kind of tied to our logo, ties to yeah. its historical um, story, and kind of a benefit it can have on the landscape. Shortleaf pine. For us here in Missouri, it's, it's cool because it's our only native pine tree. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now, when we talk about the short leaf pine, it's easy to get kind of, woo, it looks like any other pine tree. Um, but usually the needles are in bundles of two, sometimes three. Um, they're three to five inches long. Um, the thing about the shortleaf pine is since it is native. Now, uh, the story of the shortleaf pine was during the basically industrial revolution when we were building up the East Coast and the cities were exploding. One of the biggest, if not the biggest, sawmill was right here in southern Missouri along the close to the current river. And we had an overabundance of, or not overabundance, we had an abundance of shortleaf pine trees here in the Ozark Mountains. And they started cutting it out. Of course, it's all marketed as yellow pine, and yellow pine covers four, mainly four species, but uh, shortleaf being one of those. And they cut it out to a point where they almost removed it from the state. They cut it so hard. Wow. And when they, now people are aware of it, um, then kind of it's it's one of those things that we're we're aware of the shortleaf pine what happened to it but it's still not great awareness because the population has been in decline 53 percent since 1980 um, so it's still in trouble um, there are some shortleaf pine initiative I believe is is a group that's doing their part to spread awareness and try to bring it back in the landscape. Um, but the shortleaf pine to me is one of those things. Now, its its range is typically in the southeast, going from northern Florida up all the way into like Delaware, Maryland, even mm-hmm. new parts of New Jersey and southern Illinois and Ohio to Missouri and down into east Texas. Um, so it's got a pretty big range. But when we look at, okay, let's plant – I want cedar trees for thermal cover. I want cedar trees for thermal cover. And you look at their invasive nature – and then shortleaf pines really aren't that invasive as far as, and they're, they're not invasive. I don't even want to hint that they are. If you're using fire and you plant it. I indication that they are an invasive. When you species. think about, I, I think of the one spot on the farm. It, it's kind of cool to me because my dad for a FFA project planted shortleaf pines across from my farm when they owned this this across the road, mm-hmm. the 16 acres. And they're probably now, that would have been, and uh, they're probably 40, almost 50 years old, I guess. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, they're humongous, but there are some, you know, from the pine cones, there's a bunch of dog hair thick ones below it, but there was no fire. There's been no cattle, nothing but just pine needles um, right. growing uh, or pine needles down. And then the pine trees, the small pine trees grow up, but they're not nearly, they're not invasive. They're nothing like an eastern red cedar, but they still provide thermal cover and they're a great woodland and savanna species. Um, so they can provide that cluster or one or two pines on the landscape ranging from different ages to provide thermal cover but they're also um just a great looking tree um and i love to hunt out of them they're cool Um, i I love the shape of them and that's again i love the logo the our logo represents a shortleaf pine um and it's just a really awesome awesome tree one of the other big reasons why i like them is because of the shape and of their design though and their distribution, the way they do to grow in a natural setting where there is the disturbances of fire, is they let so much sunlight in. That's right. Like there's, I, you can have that that tree look and, and them present in it. Let's just say across fifty acres, you can have trees present because we like trees. We were in Nebraska, we're like, oh gosh, where are all the trees? You can have that, but then you still have so much herbaceous vegetation in that range of you know ten foot and under. 
managed really well um, because of the amount of sunlight, the way these grow tall and slender. And then they have, even through their, their pine needles, you have light coming down through. And one of the biggest things east of Mississippi is the pine um, beetles are killing off shortleaf pines and nobody's replanting them. So yeah. they're just, they're either trying to spread needles naturally themselves or uh, they're dying from pine needles. And so they are a concern there as well. So if you're in those areas, do plant some shortleaf pines. That's right. Um, they, they typically can live on average 200 years old and they grow to 120 foot tall. So just a great pine tree. Um, that pretty well wraps it up on the shortleaf pine. Cool. Man, I, I enjoyed this podcast. Like doing different types of research and doing um, research on the species that like we don't ever we don't ever talk about typically on this podcast, but we'll mention like in the field on consulting trips. Um, but just getting those additional facts and and understanding more fully, even for us, the impact that these animals and different vegetative like species what they do it's it's incredible their role what they do and how we can use them to our advantage to me it all goes and points back to again just how perfectly it was designed from the beginning and the role that each specific animal and each specific plant had like it, it wasn't just here because it was here it's here for this reason it's and it's here because it leans on this to to make a greater impact for this animal or greater impact for this like everything needs each other when you looked at the native landscape there was really species that provided something to another species but also lean took something from another species and that's why when you look at the old early secession and prairies there's when you look at the makeup of legumes and broadleaves mm-hmm. and grasses and they're the all they mining and, and yeah. through mycorrhizal fungi are transferring nutrients that they can fixate to another species that can't fixate it and then they can pull um a nutrient from that species that they just gave um nitrogen and they're communicating with each other through their root system to do all of this and then, then you look at like all the insects that that use those plants as cover, as forage, and and the the pollinators. Then all of those are additional, uh, you know, part of the food chain for the species like songbirds, game birds. It, it just the list goes on and on and on, and it's all interconnected and designed. It's woven together so well and so perfectly. And that's, again, what blows my mind and why I know that we love doing what we do because we're able to share this and talk about this and how great it was created. It's so cool. That's that's right. And that's why we want to be bigger and better more than just deer hunters. Don't be a deer manager. Be a land manager. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Would you rather... Would you rather? Huh. I'm drawing a blank. I got one. Would you rather do a full body mount on a field mouse or a monarch butterfly? Monarch butterfly. (laughs) Do one of the. You've seen the ones where they have like the little pins in the shadow box? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do that. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah. I want to do a little full body mount on a, on a mouse. That'd be cool. One thing I did, I forgot on the monarch butterfly. There's people that like buy monarch eggs yeah. and are trying to like do their part. And there's a lot of research that's showing that that's not helping at all. And they're strongly encouraging people to really? stop that. Yes, and that just is. let them do their part, do their thing. So, which is funny. It goes back to hey, habitat. Yeah, habitat. Yeah, it's like pin raised deer all the deer hurt and i'm gonna raise some here and oh, that's not a good plan and, and, and quail too we often yeah. we often get that question hey how successful is that not not great success not nearly as good as habitat management yeah, yeah exactly all right guys we appreciate you joining us and hopefully we will catch you next time we'll see you